And I was, I was read a story some time ago and about a trail in the Italian Alps. And it was a trail that was, uh, went up a mountain that a monastery had been built on. And the monks, some years back, had built along the trail, along the mountain, the Stations of the Cross. And if you're not familiar with the Stations of the Cross, the Stations of the Cross is kind of a Catholic tradition where there's 14 Stations of the Cross. If you ever go to one of the cathedrals, you'll see usually along the, around the outer edges of the wall, these Stations of the Cross, which tell the story of Christ's arrest, his crucifixion. And uh, every year, thousands of people would climb this mountain and they would go through the Stations of the Cross where they would stand finally at an outdoor crucifix. Now, just for those of you who don't know, the difference between a cross and a crucifix is the crucifix still has the crucified Christ on it. This is an example of a crucifix. What we have behind me is what we would consider the cross. And the reason why the Catholic Church keeps Christ on the cross is in their, in their, they tend to focus on the suffering of Christ, the passion of the Christ. The word passion means to, to be willing to suffer for something. And, uh, and we, uh, our tradition focuses on the resurrected Christ, so the cross is empty. Not saying one is necessarily better than the other, but that's why you have them on there. And I think you should focus on both, to be honest with you. But a couple, uh, some years after, uh, you know, this was all put into place, a tourist noticed that there was a, a little trail that went off behind the, the crucifix. And it was obscured by overgrown bushes and stuff. And so this tourist followed it down, and he found that there was a, a 15th station that had been built, but forgotten about. And it was a station that, that celebrated the resurrection. But people had forgotten that this was even there, and maybe one reason they had forgotten it is this is a fairly recent uh, tradition within the Catholic Church. It wasn't until 1978 that Pope John Paul II, one of the first things he did when he became Pope was to say there should be a 15th station of the cross which celebrates resurrection. But that had been so forgotten because it wasn't part of tradition that people would stop at the crucifix and stand there, and that would be kind of their final, their final end to the journey on the mountain as they would contemplate the suffering of Christ. It would end with this. And it just made me think that, you know, over the years and over the centuries, many have gotten kind of stuck at this part of Jesus' story, stuck, stuck at the cross. Because it's easy to identify with the cross, especially if you've gone through brokenness in your own life, you've gone through heartbreak in your own life, if you've gone through loss in your life, if you feel like you've been betrayed by those who are supposed to care for you, some say even betrayed by God. It's easy to identify with the crucified Christ. But the thing is, is the story of the cross, it doesn't end with the crucifixion of Christ. In fact, without, and the, the cross isn't the message of Easter. The cross is the message of Good Friday, which we had, we had our service on Good Friday, the suffering of Christ. But the message of Easter is the empty tomb. The empty tomb, which is the dawn of new hope, the dawn of new life, the dawn of a new human destiny, the message of the resurrection is found in the resurrection of Christ. And yet, even though we live on this side of the cross, we're in hindsight, 
We can see the glory of Jesus Christ. We can know the history. We can have confidence in eternal life because of what he's done. There are still many who approach Christ, and they acknowledge the sacrifice of Christ. But then they remove the power of the cross by not going to the place where the cross is leading us, which is to the empty tomb. And I don't want to give the impression that the cross is somehow unimportant, that we just need to get over it. That's not the message at all. But we do need to move beyond it because Christ moved beyond it. And while we do preach Christ crucified, as we're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we do not worship a Christ that is still on the cross. We worship the living Savior, the resurrected Lord. We worship the risen Christ. And this is the emphasis that you find over and over again in Scripture, that we are to have our lives transformed not just by the suffering of Christ, but by the resurrection of Christ. And we need to be able to move to the place where the cross wants to take us, which is beyond the crucifixion and to the empty tomb. We're going to look at the, the story of the resurrection in two of the Gospels, one the Gospel of Luke, the other the Gospel of John. We're going to spend most of it in Luke. And this is what it says. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while you were still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now notice here that the disciples are so unprepared for the reality of the resurrection that they respond to this testimony, which is given to them by three witnesses, which if you look back in the Old Testament Judaism, everything has to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. That's the phrase that you'll see over and over again. Two or three witnesses. And obviously three is better than two. And that's why I believe these three are named. There are three named witnesses. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James. And then it says, and the others with them. So there is more than just the three. But for sure, there were three witnesses, and yet the apostles responded to this message as if this was nonsense. It was nonsense. Not that they didn't understand, not that they were confused by their message, not that they thought, well, that's not really what I was expecting, but nonsense. This is crazy what you're saying. This makes no sense. 
I find it fascinating that the, the disciples, and you see this in the other Gospels, they were so unprepared and for the resurrection of Christ that when they are told that this is happening, instead of saying, wow, now I remember Jesus said that, they just dismiss it as nonsense. And then it says Peter got up and was at the tomb, and we know from the Gospel of John that John goes with him, and Peter goes in and looks but John even says they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I mean, it couldn't be laid out more clearly. The disciples, even though they saw the empty tomb, they weren't quite sure what to make of it. They didn't understand that Jesus was... And you say, how can you not understand? Jesus told you directly, and you can look it up in the Gospels, that he is going to rise from the dead, just like the angels told them that he's going to be handed over He's going to be crucified, and he's going to rise from the dead. But there's just something they just couldn't see. And then, if you, can, if you put the gospel stories together, Mary Magdalene then goes back to the tomb, and that's where she encounters the risen Christ. So she goes, she comes, she goes back. And then when she goes and tells the disciples about that, they still don't respond. And this inability of the disciples to wrap their heads around their uh, resurrection is an important thing to keep in mind. So keep in mind because later on we'll talk about it more. Continuing with the, the Luke story. So, while they were still talking about this, being the disciples, and the, in the Gospel of Luke, there's the story of the road to Emmaus in between the resurrection and this point. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe, and this is interesting, because of joy and amazement, that's, a, that's a, I think, almost an intentionally confusing phrase. Because it, it gives you the sense of, you know, their, their minds are going all these different directions. They still did not believe. Because of, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And we've talked about this quite often. Why does he do this? Well, to show he's not a ghost. He takes and eats it, and it doesn't just fall through his body and onto the floor, to show that he's not a ghost. He is the re he is resurrected, and he has substance. He has form. He's material. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Remember, there's this part in uh, Matthew where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And upon the cross, Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law and of the prophets and of the Psalms. And then it's, this is interesting. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what, was, what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of all these things. You know, we live in a time of, that's kind of a skeptical age. And 
things like the resurrection. You can go on YouTube. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but you could. You can find all kinds of videos and stuff that claim that they have ways that they argue against the resurrection of Christ. And a lot of these arguments are actually quite old. They come from the early 1900s. For example, there was a guy named Rudolf Bultmann. He was a, a theologian. And his theory on it was that the disciples were so wanting to see Jesus Christ that they had a mass hallucination and that together they all kind of hallucinated the same thing, which was the risen Christ. And these were people, these theologians were very influential in the early 1900s and up until like the 1940s, 1950s. And we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks, you know, the impact that that had. But I always find it interesting that if you know the Bible even at a fairly elementary level, you can read over and over again that the disciples did not so want to see the risen Christ that they had a mass hallucination. When you read the Bible, the disciples had no expectation of ever seeing Christ. That's really what's there. There wasn't a want to see Christ. They didn't expect it. They thought it was done. They thought that hope had been crushed. Glory was over. This magic carpet ride that they went on with Jesus was done. I find it amazing that people who have a lot of advanced degrees and have quite a large audience who claim to know the Bible and would say things like this, frankly, they need to sit down and read the Bible. They need to understand what it is that they're claiming to understand. Because... We see in Thomas, and this is where we'll go to the Gospel of John, Thomas is a good example of a guy that he doesn't have any illusions about seeing or any wanting about seeing the risen Christ. In fact, he's kind of the opposite of that. John tells us, John tells us a little bit more about Thomas. He says, now Thomas called Didymus, which means the twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So he wasn't with them this first time he shows up. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails are, and I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. I think Thomas gets kind of a bad reputation as doubting Thomas. I think he's more heartbroken Thomas. And he's also pragmatic. When you read about Thomas, we don't see a whole lot of passages that are devoted to Thomas in the Scripture. But one of the other ones that, that gives us a little sense of his personality was when Lazarus had, was, res, was dying and then died, and Jesus says, let's go to him. It's Thomas that says, well, let's go with him and die with him, meaning Christ. Let's go with Christ, and we're just going to go die with Christ. He was a little bit of a pessimist. Germans might call him a realist. But that he was going to go, and he expected we're going to die. But his courage, Thomas doesn't say, so let's hide. He's like, let's go with him. So Thomas wasn't a, a coward. He wasn't, I don't really think he was a doubter. I think he was heartbroken. He was heartbroken, and he was disappointed because he had seen this Lord, this Jesus, who brought him hope and joy, who gave him purpose. He, he saw him beaten, nailed to a cross, and, 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 and he was one of the ones that ran away. So maybe he didn't actually get to see the cross take place, unless maybe he observed it from a distance. 
but he knew what had happened to him. And these are the words of a man who could not and would not move beyond the cross. He's in his place of brokenness, and he, he won't move beyond it. He wants to stay in that place of brokenness. He wants to stay in that place of disappointment. And you say, why would anyone want to stay there? Why do we go back to the same sins in our lives over and over again? We know what they do to us. We know that we hate them, but we keep going back. We, we just kind of fall into this place that's, we somehow kind of prefer the pain we know instead of chance on a hope that we might not know. And Thomas is there. For whatever reason, he's stuck. And Jesus shows up. And Jesus uses Thomas's own words. He says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And what is it that Thomas is to stop doubting? What is it that Thomas is to believe? He's to stop doubting in the resurrection of Christ. And he is to put his faith and his belief in the resurrection of Christ. Jesus is telling Thomas, Thomas, believe that there's more. Believe there's more. More to this life than just living and dying. More than just suffering. More than just disappointment. There's more to this life, Thomas. Move beyond the cross. And come to the place of the empty tomb. And have hope. Hope eternal. Believe that I am the Christ resurrected. And that my story has not ended. It has just begun. And it's begun for you and everyone who believes. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. So then what does it mean for us to move beyond the cross to the place of the empty tomb? How do we apply this to our lives? And why is it important? Well, John tells us very succinctly why this is all important. As he finishes up the story of the resurrection, he ends with this. But these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why it's important. It's important that we're able to move through the, where the cross takes us to the empty tomb so that the event of the cross has power. It's on the cross that Jesus died for our sins. He became sin for us. But that is vindicated and that is proven true through the resurrection. Through the resurrection of Christ, Jesus is vindicated as the victor over sin and death. Without the resurrection... We wouldn't be here today. If Jesus was being remembered at all, he would be remembered as a guy that had a lot of dreams, maybe a little delusional, who ended up being killed by the Romans, just like thousands of other people were killed by the Romans, nailed to crosses. And we wouldn't be here today. But we're here today because the resurrection took place. Rudolf Boltman said it was just a mass hallucination. But even people who are skeptics who are willing to be intellectually honest look at the letters written by Paul in particular and also the, some of the other epistles. People who are skeptics don't very often give the Gospels a lot of credence, but they'll look at these letters and they say, whoever wrote this letter really believed 
that Jesus had appeared to his disciples. That there is no question in Paul. There is no metaphor. There is no kind of like explanation that is any other than Jesus appeared to his disciples after the crucifixion. And when you look at how the apostles lived their lives, they lived with a dedication to this truth even unto death. They were all martyred except for the apostle John. We think John is the only one tradition tells us he lived a, a long life. But none of them ever backed off. They lived this because they had witnessed it. And no matter what the torture was or the imprisonment was or whatever came their way, they could not deny what they had seen and experienced in the resurrected Christ. And these guys and the ladies and everyone that was around them as that first group of the early church changed the world. They changed the world. Everybody who is a person of, of, of uh, faith or not faith in the West has been impacted by Christ. Christianity has impacted the West, what we call the West. It's also impacted Islam. Jesus is mentioned more in the Quran than Muhammad. Now, their understanding of Jesus is not biblical, but the impact of Christ. It changed the world. A lie like, well, we just had a mass hallucination. That's not going to change the world. It's important for us to understand this. And it's, maybe it's important for you on an individual level. Maybe you've kind of come to the cross at some place in your life and you've gotten stuck there. You've looked at the suffering of Jesus. You said he, he died for my sins, but you still kind of stay in that place of I'm just kind of a horrible person because look what I did. I, I'm responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. And I believe Jesus would tell you, yeah, I did die for your sins. I took your sins upon the cross, but I took them to the cross, not so you'll just sit here and wallow in your sense of not being worthy, in your sense of I'm a worm, I'm a worm theology kind of thing. I died so you could have freedom. I died so you could have life and you could have it abundant, that you could be born again. Trust in me, that in me you will find new life and new hope. A life which is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. A life that doesn't have to be stuck in the endless cycle of disappointment, of sin, and the disappointment of what the world tells us we need. It's a life that can know more. And what that more is, is kind of unique for whatever Jesus has for you in this life. But Jesus said, I came to, that they would have life and they would have it abundantly. And we don't just sit around and wait to die in order to experience the life that Christ has for us, he gives us his spirit so we can experience this now. And it's not just a dream. It's not just an illusion or delusion that we're all under. It is a historic fact. And this forgiving power of Christ's sacrifice, it's found in the fact that Jesus was vindicated through the resurrection. It's interesting when you look at what the Apostle Paul says when he talks about salvation, he says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice it doesn't say, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and that Christ died on the cross and you'll be saved. If you believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. There's an assumption of his death if you believe in the resurrection. So it's the risen Savior then that tells us to move past the old shames. Repent for sure. Confess it to God, absolutely. Make amends with people if you need to. But move on. Don't sit in that place of brokenness. Don't sit in that place of shame. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we will sit and remain in the old places of brokenness and shame. He died on the cross so that we could repent, which means to turn away and to live a new life in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Move past the guilt. Move past the tears. Move past the doubts. Move on to the new things that Christ has for you. And this is the message that's found in the resurrection. This is the message that's found in the empty tomb. This is the message why we're even here today at all. This is the message that, this is the reason why we're here every Sunday. That there is something beyond the brokenness and the guilt that sin brings into human lives. And that something beyond has been sacrificed for and paid the fulfillment of the law of the pro- and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. The fulfillment was upon the cross. And since the justice of God and the mercy of God has been met upon the cross, we then turn our eyes to the resurrected Christ, who is our living Savior, in whom we place our trust. And if you're here today and you're with us and you've never really given your hope and your soul and your, your confidence of who you are as a person into the hands of the living God, then I would encourage you to do so. Obviously, I would encourage you to do so. Because hearing it, intellectually ascending, saying, okay, I, I agree that Jesus rose from the dead, but never acting on it by committing your life to Christ just puts you in the place of an observer on the sidelines observing Christ, not being engaged with Christ. I would encourage you to give your life to Christ, to trust Him, to believe in the, the history that we have, that He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for your word. We thank you for your, the scriptures. We thank you for the gospels, the letters, all the things that make up the scripture. We thank you for the Old Testament, which gives us the context of the New Testament. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to know you more deeply, that we could love you more deeply, and that we would be willing to have our lives submit to your spirit so that our lives are transformed, not just changed or reformed, but transformed by your spirit. We pray you would give us the mind of Christ, that we would have the heart of Christ, that the Spirit in us could reign as the King in our lives, and that by following you, we could be salt and light in this world that struggles with skepticism, struggles with voices of doubt, struggles with hopelessness and fear, struggles with sin, struggles with the pain and the heartbreak. God, may we be the ambassadors of Christ, extending that hand of hope, introducing a world to those who don't know him. And Lord, in our own lives, there may be some here that are still, even though they are believers, they still 
struggle in places of brokenness, in places of disappointment, in places of wondering, is everything forgiven? Can this thing be forgiven? And Lord, we pray that your spirit will bring them to the realization that Christ died for our sins, that he was the sacrifice once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And that he wants our lives to be transformed by his spirit and by his forgiveness and his grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.